pep, pep, bla 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. This is the one about disagreeing with the plan. It's also one where Pick explains why he can't order in a French restaurant. So you're working in the emergency department and you go see a patient, you come out, the resident goes in, sees the patient and comes out, explains a beautiful presentation to you, does all of the bells and whistles that you enjoy, gives you all the information you need, and then you're able to get the resident to commit to a plan and you're in a situation where that plan is absolutely wrong. What do you do? Usually my head explodes, I scream at them until my face gets red, and then they cry. No, no, no. That was when we were practicing medicine as residents. Work I for think, me. I think we've grown since then. Uh, so so what, do we, what do we really do? So what I probably really do is uh, get over my surprise and start dissecting that presentation down. Let's figure out where you and I went apart because I thought you were going a different way with this. So finding the pieces of information that the resident felt were important uh, that led them down the track to, to their plan and comparing them to the pieces of information that you think are important that led you to your plan. Yes, telling them that uh, the things that they overweighted were wrong and uh, convincing them that my way is right. Well, it's still a little on the harsh side. I have to be honest with you, I, in this situation, having done that often, I have certainly had cases where all of a sudden the resident presents me with a piece of data that I did not get from a patient and that that piece of data changed my weighting and their plan isn't necessarily wrong with that added data. Sure. And now uh, you realize that actually uh, the divergence was real, but you should have been on their track. Well, I think every time a patient tells the story, every time they get questioned by a healthcare provider and they get questioned by a healthcare provider at least three times in our emergency department, the story is a little different. And so part of why we do these discussions is to bring all that data together. Why do I read the nursing notes? Because it also has different data. And that has been shown many times when we've looked at this, and that is a feature, not a bug. Someone asked them about, oh, I don't know, the timeline of their chest pain and what they were doing, focusing their attention on that as an important piece of information. I know that the residents are horribly annoyed when I come out of the room having asked the exact same question that they, I swear to God, I asked, and I get a different answer, and I tell them that's what's supposed to happen. Another way that I've found that, that we can have a completely different plan has to do with pretest probability. Often, my pretest probability is very different than the resident's pretest probability. Uh, and some of that pretest comes from what variables you weight and how much you weight them. Zebras scare us all. The, the diagnosis that can kill you, uh, but are exceptionally rare. And I find that residents tend to think they occur more frequently than they actually do. So we talk about them incessantly and we put them in your head so you never forget them, but then you think they're out in the world maybe much more often than they are. You want to diagnose every hemoptysis with TB, even though bronchitis is a million times more common. Right. So, so I think sometimes helping them with that pre-test piece, showing them actual numbers can be really helpful. I will say the last thing that, I, that happens when they have a wrong plan, the thing that triggers me most, is when they turn to me and say, well, all the other attendings do it this way. Uh, which means you are the outlier and the crazy person. Leave me alone and let me do the standard of care, Tom. And whereas that may be true, again, this requires for me a deconstruction. And, and when I hear that other attendings are doing things very different than I, 
my first question is to see if the resident understands why that attending does it one way and why I might want to do it a different way. And now you're sort of at the mercy of whether they question that attending about the underlying reasoning, what their own mental model of the problem is, and it's a common problem. Schizophrenic attendings, I just had this case yesterday with Dr. So-and-so, and he did a completely different thing, and it was the same patient. So we are essentially in still an apprenticeship. And whoever you are working with, you are modeling your behavior on their behavior, and it's not always evidence-based. But back in the day, Osler realized it was probably better to learn doctoring at the bedside, watching other doctors. Uh, and we do get a lot out of that expertise, but we, are we transmitting all of the errors as well? Oh, I think that's been shown in multiple studies. What, up to 30% of information on rounds is incorrect information? But that's how my uh, teachers did it, so therefore I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, this is one of those uh, practice makes permanent, not practice makes perfect kind of I like issues. It. So, so what do you, how do you deal with the schizophrenic attending problem? So in these cases, which are super common, one of three things is happening. In one, the other attending is doing a thing that actually is a reasonable thing. There are five ways to, to approach a case, uh, none of which is terribly the dangerous wrong way, and that needs to be sussed out a little bit. So I, I think that's fine. If there are many ways of doing something, putting in a shoulder, uh, a lot of different things, there are a lot of techniques that work perfectly well, uh, then I am usually willing to shift my plan to their plan. As long as I don't think it's going to hurt the patient, if two things are equal and the resident has a way they want to do it, very often I'll say, okay, let's do it your way. Absolutely. So that's that's not how the uh, you presented the case in the beginning. Uh, this was a, I need to really correct. So the second way is that uh, these two cases that to the resident seem identical are in fact very different cases and they differ in a way that the resident cannot see, that it has not been pointed out to him. Uh, that this evidence that might apply in this patient does not apply to the 80-year-old chemo person. Uh, uh, or there's a feature of the story that one case lacks, the other one has. Something like that. Uh, and then the final way is uh, one of them is wrong. Actually, verifiably wrong. And when I have a situation where I feel that another attending or other attendings are wrong, I don't want to just have it be a pissing match. I don't want my salesmanship to, you know, make the patient, the resident believe my way over the other attending. I need something to work off of. Uh, and uh, that something is a note that says, remember, I'm your program director and you graduated my say-so. I keep a stamp with that on it at all times. No, in my case, it's always been evidence-based medicine. So, so either I will bring up a study to explain why I do what I do, or I will often grab the resident and we will look up together the studies that say which of these two ways is correct. Great. Show me your work, right? This is the uh, so-and-so does it this way, I do it this way. I wonder why. Let's investigate. Let's look it up. I think the important piece here is that when two attendings are in conflict and the resident has now watching two different ways of doing stuff, especially in a situation where you're going to contradict another attending, I think it is really important for you to explain why. When the resident goes back to the next, to that other attending, and says, this is the way I'm doing it, that time they need to be able to explain in their own words why they've chosen to do it this way. Absolutely. And, and I bet you when they investigate with that attending why they do it a different way, they're probably going to get a reasonable explanation. So one of the reasons that I love having a bunch of different attendings is that come July 1st, uh, the day after graduation, you all of a sudden get to pick your own clinical persona. And that clinical persona comes from all these different discussions that they've had in residence. Isn't it amazing how many phone calls we get the first week of July? Hey, who's working? Let me run this by you. 
as if they haven't had the last year to do the math. So, Tom, what's our article for the day? So today's article are scripts and medical diagnostic knowledge, theory and applications for clinical reasoning, instruction, and research. This is by Bernard Charlin in Academic Medicine in February of 2000. We're going for an oldie but goodie. We are going to talk about how we make medical diagnosis. How doctors think. Right. Great topic. So it starts with scripts, and, and in my view, scripts are a picture of the perfect clinical diagnosis, the the perfect PE, only it has fuzzy edges to allow for this actual patient to fit into that picture or not. Okay, so there's things about a PE's presentation that are are allowed in because of the fuzzy edges, and there's also hard, sharp bits that know this round hole cannot go in that square peg, and so we are going to reject that script. It's not PE, we got to keep looking. So the script is the shape of the hole in this case. The article reviews the nature of scripts and then starts to talk about hypothesis generation. And one of the things that they they talk about is that junior clinicians don't necessarily have the vast number of scripts. So when they see knee pain, there are only certain things that they think of where someone who's been practicing orthopedics for 20 years will certainly have more scripts that knee pain fits into. I think that's actually... Uh, really insightful and accurate and, and how we actually think. When you are starting out, you are checking off what the patient's saying against like five things for chest pain. Is it ACS? Is it dissection? Is it PE? And then you're kind of at the, I don't know. Whereas a expert will start off automatically generating patterns that the patient's talking about as they go. So they're very data first and uh, outcome last, right? So that's the Sherlock Holmes, it's criminal to hypothesize before the data. Then it goes into scripts as organizers of flow of clinical information. So what's that? Well, that's a, uh, as you are gathering information, one bit of information might activate a script in your head that actually next makes you change how you're investigating. So if the patient says, I'm thirsty, a more experienced clinician might follow that up with, are you peeing a lot? Are you losing weight? You got blurry vision? Whereas a novice will not see the importance of that. Yeah, they'll say, are you hungry? <laughs> Do you need a pillow? Right. So the article talks about the major difference between student and experienced clinician is that when asked for a summary of a patient's problem, the students tend to recite an endless amount of data about the clinical findings, while an experienced clinician will be able to summarize the patient's problems in a way that captures the significant information and ignores the insignificant. I like that. So that's uh, make it as simple as you can without making it too simple uh, to be understood. And it's certainly going to convince me, listening to the story, that the uh, trainee is on the right track. And what's the last bit of the article? So the last bit of the article is about the um, assessment of the fit between a script and a given clinical situation. And I think this is actually uh, what we all do to make a diagnosis. We, we end up uh, weighing everything about the patient, how they presented, the white count, the information, the x-ray, and saying, yes, I'm calling it. This is this diagnosis. And when the fit is too far away, we're kind of left with that, uh-oh, we might need to keep investigating. So one of the things I actually really liked about this article was that it goes through some of the script and clinical reasoning literature that have gone before it. Uh, They particularly reference uh, Patel and Groen, who basically did a study where they asked expert and novice physicians to describe out loud their process of reasoning. 
And basically, they argue that the experts reason forward from the data to diagnosis, while novices reason backwards from hypothesis to data, which is exactly the stuff you said before. Absolutely. So this is, the, again, uh, in the beginning, there's uncertainty, but the expert is not willing to put down their money yet, uh, whereas the novice is already saying, well, it's not this, it's not this. Again, this is scripts and medical no uh, diagnostic knowledge, theory and application for clinical reasoning and instruction and research. Academic me uh, Medicine, February 2000. Thank you. So, Pick, what's today's This Is Not A Thing? Today's This Is Not A Thing is La Belle Indifférence. Ah, La Belle Indifférence. It basically means, in French, faking it. Oh, yes, that is what it means. So, you have a patient who comes in, their left arm stopped working, uh, and unless they're yelling and screaming and having a fit, clearly they have a conversion disorder. That's exactly right. If they're yelling and screaming and having a fit, you call security. But if they're talking calmly and nonchalantly to you about the fact that they are, you know, paralyzed, apparently they need a psychiatrist and not a CAT scan. So basically what it seems like is every diagno diagnosis of exclusion is la belle indifférence. Uh, if you have worked up the patient uh, for everything possible and it's negative, then of course they must have a conversion disorder. Unless you got it wrong. I mean, that's a possibility. We get uh, stuff wrong? Apparently so. And then the patients scream and yell, and then we call security again. <laughs> as long the, as we have a plan. That's right. Uh, the patient I recall is a gentleman that I did as a stroke screen who had absolutely obvious weakness and numbness. And he told me, listen, I've had transverse myelitis before, just like this. This is a flare of that. Uh, and that time they told me that I was suffering from a psychiatric disorder and I had to seek counseling and rehab because, you know, my leg didn't work. And then months later, on a second opinion, when I brought my MRI to a specialist, he said, oh, they just misread your scan. In fact, you have transverse myelitis, as they suspected initially. So labella indifference has a larger global piece of medicine, which is anytime I don't want to do something or don't want to believe a patient, I need a French name for it. So if I don't want to give pain medicine and the vitals look okay, if I had a French name for that, that'd be great. Permission to not proceed because I don't feel like it. And then, of course, this patient violates my rule of when the patient and the test disagree. The patient is always right. You just misread the test. You did the wrong test. Uh, so this guy was very angry, obviously, deservedly so. Uh, and he basically said, listen, I'm a stockbroker. I work on Wall Street. People scream in my face. This is my face. I don't have a whatever you call it, flat affect. I am actually unhappy that my leg doesn't work again. Please take care of me. So you called security. I did call security, and I escorted him to the MRI machine. Um, <laughs> That's but it, perfect. It prompted me to, to do a little review of the thing that I, I hate, and I found a systematic review of 11 studies that look at this since 1965, and they found that in 21% of patients, labelle indifference predicted a psychiatric final diagnosis. 21%? That's pretty good. Yes. In the organic group, it was 30%. So if labelle indifference means anything, it means you should be more worried, not less worried, that the patient is sick with a non-psychiatric illness. It is so not a thing. So there we go. That's not a thing. Pick what are our things to try today. Today, we should try to figure out what our learners' pre-existing scripts are and really investigate why you think this patient fit this script properly or maybe the reasons why you think they didn't fit and we shouldn't work them up. That's great, because if they don't have the right scripts, they're not going to be putting the right patients into that category. I like that a lot. My try this today is look up 
the real pretest probability of a diagnosis with one of your trainees. So you have somebody who has chest pain and they're 35 years old and they have no risk factors and a normal EKG, instead of just saying the word low risk, give them a number. And there are plenty of studies that you can find these numbers in. Wonderful. So they have now, and they've anchored on some kind of rate and that's a launching point for their real risk. Great. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get around.